Welcome to Video Store. I am Sam Mulberry, and today we are talking about the 1983 film Tender Mercies. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Thanks. Barrett, this is a movie that I saw for the first time in 1998 um, as part of the a course I took called Film and the Modern Sensibility, taught by Dom Postema and Thomas Becknell. It seemed like a very important movie to them at the time. So uh, that's the last time I saw it. I think I saw it twice that year because I, I watched it when I took the course and then I TA'd uh, the following January. And I think I showed this uh, this film to students. So I saw it you know, intensely twice about 22 years ago and then watching it again uh, this week was really interesting. So maybe let's start with what is your history with this film? And then I have a couple other history questions for you in terms of personal history stuff. Well, you know, I, I know that I didn't see it in the theater for, for a couple of reasons. I wasn't going to the theater very often in the mid-80s, and the film got very, very, very limited release. So I'm, I, I'm assuming I must have picked up on it sometime in, in the mid-90s um, after we had a VHS. I know I didn't see it on DVD. I know it would have been VHS. I may have even seen it because I looked at Thomas and, and, and uh, Don's uh, list of films. And, and uh, so I was aware. And, and also I may have seen it because I had been reading some film criticism that was friendly to films with a Christian or religious theme. Um, but I can't pinpoint exactly when. It must have been sometime in the 90s. Of course, I know who Duval was. Um, I knew who Bruce Beresford was at that point, so I would have been interested in it because it was his first American film. So another question that I want to ask, and, and your, your answer can be none, and that's okay, but uh, what is your history with country and Western music? Because that oh, plays such, a, plays such a big, big role in this yeah. movie, um, and... I also have a history with it, so I want to hear your history with, with yeah, that. Yeah, I, I have a really interesting history with country western music. Um, my dad was a big country and western music fan, but he liked he liked the most countryish of country western music. So, like, he was a, if you know any country western music, he was a Porter Wagoner fan. Um, I And my brother was a Roy Clark fan. Um, I was a huge and remain a very large Chris Christopherson fan. Um, and Johnny Cash. But if you know a little bit about the evolution of country music, you know, Chris Christopherson sort of represents a move, kind of a new Nashville, uh, kind of a move away from the, so it's kind of as a what you mean by country Western music. And I think Tender Mercies is the classic. Max Sledge is a kind of Waylon, not, not Waylon Jennings, a kind of um, Hank Williams character. Uh, in fact, Roger Ebert, when he wrote about the film, said he had Hank Williams on in, in the background. So that's the country music that really tells stories. Uh, it's fundamentally about people's about stories, storytelling people's lives. The other person I, I, I love listening to is kind of on the edge of country music is John Prine. Uh, he's a little country, he's a little folk, he's a little rockish. So anyway, that's and and my dad and I had big disagreements. Uh, I remember we would be riding in our RV back in the days of eight track tapes, and he would only allow me to put Chris Christopherson on like once, once a week. He just for some reason he just couldn't stand Chris Christopherson. And then he put on Porter Wagoner and um, Loretta Lynn. That's okay. Um, anyway, that's me and country music. Because I will say, uh, and this ties into my my history with country music, uh, country western music is. Um, this film is very 1983 to me. Um, so I was six years old. So obviously I didn't see this movie then, but I was alive in 1983 and I was old enough to have memories of that. 
And I was talking to my brother on the phone yesterday and we were talking about video store. And I said, you know, the movie we watched this week, I don't know. I don't think you've ever seen it, but you should watch it. And even if you don't like it, you're going to be interested in the fact that it, it, it feels like part of our childhood is there. Um, not that I grew up in like this deserted Island in Texas or something, <laughs> but the, some of the, like, uh, just the look of it, uh, has feels like like childhood and i i am not a fan of country music but i grew up in a household that was my both my parents are so um especially the uh the betty buckley character mm. um dixie scott is like that's the kind of country music i grew up around um i'm, I'm <laughs> i didn't grow up listening to it by choice but it's what i grew up around and like this just instantly set me back to the early 1980s and the kinds of like music specials my mom would watch on TV. And because we had one TV, it meant I ended up watching that as well. Like I could imagine uh, Dixie Scott being a guest host on the Muppet show or something like that, you know, like, like, you know, like, like you would have a Barbara Mandrell or somebody like that. Like it, it very much felt like, Oh, this is, there is something about this that feels deeply, deeply familiar. And what's interesting about the the music in this movie is it plays such a central role. <clears throat> you don't have to like the music in the movie to like the movie, uh, but there is something about needing to understand the music. Uh, and, and I think this is maybe what you were touching on in terms of that it's it's a music which is trying to tell a particular kind of story. It's a music industry that's in transition mm -hmm. um, during that time period. Because if you get 10 years later, you get sort of the the big blowout pop country that sort of becomes super yeah. mainstream. This seemed to speak to this moment where <clears throat> country music still existed in a kind of yeah. niche, you know, that, that um, to the point where when Duvall is talking about why the studio didn't get behind it, part of what he was saying was, well, they don't understand country music. I think that's, I think that's exactly right, Sam. I was thinking about the fact that um, I just recently watched the remake of A Star Is Born, and Bradley Cooper, of course, is kind of one of those one of those new style country western singers. When A Star Is Born was made in '76 with Chris Christopherson, they had him trying to be a rock singer, and it was one of the reasons why the movie stinks. Um, but I'm thinking in 76, you can't have somebody be a huge popular success as a country Western singer. So I think you're exactly right. It, uh, 83 is, it's that transition. It's just before country Western becomes something, um, you know, becomes Taylor Swift, right? I mean, and uh, it's, it, that's, that's not Max Ledge's country Western at all. Um, the, one of the other things that jumped out at me from, from the very beginning of this movie was the importance of location and especially the location of the motel that it is, I mean, I, I said the word before it is on an Island in the middle of the desert, like, uh, and, and Beresford, this is one of the things that was very important to him is that when you see that motel, you see no other man-made structure other than the road, mm -hmm. um, and that gives the hotel almost like this mythical quality. Like people have to like be accidentally passing through or they have to be in search of something or they have to be lost and wash upon the shores. I mean, it's almost a, a Odyssean, right? Max Sledge washing up on the shores here and finding this life and this redemption. And from the, from the opening shots, when you see that motel, like I already got that. It's like, okay, this is, 
both a very real place, but almost like a other world has some otherworldly spiritual quality to it, almost a kind of magic to it. Well, it, it just, it's also it, it it could also be an image out of Australia. I mean, there there's a, there's a sense in which that Texas landscape is very uh, amenable to Beresford as an, as an Australian, uh, and that so so I think that 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 also is kind of a geographical connection for him. But of course, it also is the Mariposa Motel, and Mariposa is Spanish for butterfly, uh, with you know the sim the the, the classic symbol of uh, spiritual rebirth. So it seems like the right place for Max Fledge to start over again. Yes, I thought about um, Teresa of Avila in a, in a course that I teach. We have students read a little bit from Teresa of Avila, and she mm -hmm. has this piece about the silkworm going into the cocoon and being reborn as a butterfly. Um, so yeah, when, when I didn't I didn't know that that's what Mariposa was, but as I was reading about it, I when I saw it, I saw that in one of the pieces I was reading. I was like, oh, of course, of course, that's that's perfect. And I I wonder how many people. I mean, would caught that right or you know but it's this great little reference that's kind of hidden in there well you know those things in films are never accidental so when you see the sign about the third time i said i gotta check out what mariposa means <laughs> right the other another big thing from this movie is how much happens off camera yeah you know either it's something's happening and you can't see it like the opening scene Right, the opening scene. The opening scene is sort of an action scene that we don't see. We hear, we hear. There's this fight or this scuffle, um, and I was I was watching it with subtitles, so I read what was I read the what they were saying. But I think had I not had subtitles on, I'm not sure I would have even been listening to what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so that sort of that happens off camera. But then, really, in the editing and storytelling, there's so many things where the story jumps ahead and we don't even realize it jumped ahead because uh, it's you learn about events kind of after the fact and it reveals things in uh, interesting non-linear ways, but they're linear for the characters, right? You know, but there are certain things where it's like, oh, he's never told this story before or or things like that. So um, that was really that was really interesting to me. I mean, the the big obvious one is is the wedding, right? That you see, you know, everything seems to be moving along and you don't think there's time jumps. You learn later there are time jumps there, yeah. um, but it seems like it's not. And then they have this conversation about, uh, I mean, that sort of proposal conversation in the garden, if we can call it a proposal, it is. Uh, but then you learn about the wedding at school when the kid is talking about, the person that his mom is married to and you're like oh okay so they just that happened and we didn't see that um yeah you, 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 you wonder for a minute did i miss it or do the kids misunderstand their relationship that they're just you know living together but i and that actually touches on, a, on something about this film that i haven't seen people talk much at all, at all about sam or even at all which is the way in which information is conveyed through the kids I mean, the, the, I mean, this is a film that's really kind of interested in the child's point of view and, and takes it really seriously. And I think the way the kids talk to each other is exactly as kids talk to each other. Uh, and I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, way of communicating uh, kind of both the kids' perspective and kind of how things look, look to the kids and also a, a, an interesting way of telling us kind of what's going on. So you have the information about the marriage, you have attitudes towards stepfathers. 
uh, kind of tying into that whole theme of parents and children. So I, I thought that was uh, I thought that it was an, a really kind of key element that the kids are treated as real real people with real thoughts and uh, and information. Absolutely, and the, I mean the the scene at the uh, I guess the bar where 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 Max performs. When the kid comes up, when when Max uh, uh, Max and and Rosalie are dancing, and the the other kid who's talking about, oh, that's the that's the the guy that my mom is dating, and I hope he doesn't become my stepfather. And it's like that's pretty heart heart wrenching, you know, yeah. to think like this kid has no control over his life, but this is this huge thing that can happen. And a lot of this movie is about these big things we don't have control over in our lives necessarily that shape our destiny shape the things you know that 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 we we don't we don't get to have control over those things so yeah i think absolutely the the, the scenes with the kids the first one jumped out at me as like wow i'm not sure what they're trying to do here but every time you saw a little bit more of that the other thing that th that jumped out to me is and i don't know i think everybody comes from different kinds of families but it struck me as very real even though i think for some people it might strike them as very odd is there are in families sometimes questions that never occur to you to ask. Mm -hmm. uh, I come from a family like this where, and then when an outsider comes in, sometimes yeah. all of a sudden they ask the question and you're like, Oh yeah, I never, the fact that, that, uh, that Sonny never asked about how his father died. It's like, it had never occurred to him that that's a question he could ask. Yeah. And I don't know if he felt like he wasn't allowed to ask or, whatever but like that struck me as so very real mm -hmm. yeah. and i think a lot of this movie has elements of that where it's you're you're watching it and a, a piece of information gets revealed much later and at first you're like well that seems like a weird convenient storytelling thing to hot to like hold this off but actually there are people like that where it's like oh you never asked me like when max reveals that he had a first marriage that wasn't to Dixie. It's like, we're just learning about that now, but yeah, yeah. actually I kind of believe it. Right. Right. Yeah. Because, because we don't, I mean, we, we may experience things in a linear way, but that's not how we necessarily reveal them or how other people learn about them. Right. It's, you know, like, uh, that, I mean, what, why would he tell her that? I mean, it hadn't come up. It didn't seem like it was important at the time. So. Another, uh, this reminded me in certain ways of watching the movie Once, another movie that has a lot of music at its core. And one of the comments that I made when we talked about Once was, and it's what I love about Once, is you keep waiting for bad things to happen. And in Once, they kind of don't. And in this movie, again, I kept waiting for the bad thing to happen. I kept waiting, like, because I couldn't remember. And actually, I thought in my memory, he has this relapse into drinking. So I'm like, when is that going to happen? Like, and, it, and it's like, it's this thing I don't want to see happen, but I know it's going to, because that's what stories do, right? They introduce this drinking problem. He cleans up. I, I've read too much Dostoevsky, maybe, right? He cleans up and then he starts drinking again. And it's about the, and when he goes and buys, he goes to the bar uh, after the, the song gets rejected and he has his little odyssey within this, where he goes and go, he goes to the bar and you're like, no, don't. And then he leaves and you're like, oh, good. And then you see him buy a bottle at the liquor store. You see him driving around and it's just like clearly. And then you see them waiting at home and you're like, this is when the bad thing happens. And then he comes home and he tells her, he answers our question. He tells her, I'm not drunk. I bought a bottle, but I poured it out. And I don't even trust him when he says that. 
until they start talking and it's like, oh, the bad thing didn't happen. Yeah. But this is also a movie where the bad thing does happen too. You know, right. that, that this this is not a movie that's going to keep you at a distance from the bad things because it's actually a, a movie about why do those bad things happen. But it, but it's interesting that both of those kind of key things, the bad thing that doesn't happen and the bad thing that does happen, that both of those are, are, are off screen. You know, so we, we don't see, you know, it could have been a, it could have been a dramatic moment to watch him, you know, pour out the bottle and there would have been relief for the audience. And I, and I, and I think there's, but I think that's not what Horton Foote, the screenplay writer, that's not what he's interested in, right? It's such a, it would be such a Hollywood cliche to show him pouring out the bottle. What's much more interesting is the impact of his behavior on uh, on his on the family, and so the you know the suspense that creates for us, as you're saying, because we're thinking in terms of the classic arc, whether it's Dostoevsky or whatever, he's going to come home stinking drunk. They're going to have a big row. He's blown it. He's going to get tossed out. But that's not what happens in this in, in, in this film. So he's much it's much more interested in the impact that his behavior and then the relief that we feel. And in the same way, I mean, in a way, you wouldn't expect to see the car crash that kills his daughter because the screen is, the camera is, kind of always, is in a sense always on him. And yet they could have showed it. You know, there are conventional Hollywood films, right, where there would have been a cut and you would have seen the car crash and you would have said, oh, I see what's happened. But again, it's more about how do those things have an impact on the lives of, the, of the, the lives of these particular characters? Well, it's interesting you say that the camera's always on him because in that scene, not the car crash scene, but in the in the scene where he goes out, it starts on him. But then, like you say, we live through Rosalie. And I think that's so much better storytelling. The agony of like, because we've all had that, we've all had that experience where you're waiting yeah. for someone and you you're sitting there, and at first you're just kind of occupying your mind you're watching television and she's doing that and then she shuts it off and she and it's just like this this moment of like okay now now what now what do i do and and it actually it moves her at least in that moment to the center of the frame to say this is also her story i mean it's not large it's not on the grand scale her story but it is also we do get to experience what it is like to be married to max ledge at this moment um, and, and that's, I think, really powerful. And I think it makes her character so much stronger to have those moments like that. It's also, and this is another game I play with myself when I watch older films, Sam, it's also a scene or sequence that is really, would be much more difficult to write today because of cell phones. Right. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, there's so much about films that have to do with people unable to communicate with each other. And, you know, so you can just imagine, I mean, you know, so he could have had the cell phone turned off, but it, but it, but it, it takes it at a, it's a different level because with the cell phone, there's always the possibility the person's accessible. There's a possibility you're going to get news, but without the cell, it just he's just out there. And to me, that that's that, that that's great. I mean, I think it's much more difficult to pull off that kind of isolation in a more technologically uh, saturated landscape. I also love when he comes back, the story he tells about, like, I started to drive to Austin. I started to drive to Dallas. I started to drive to San Antonio. And I turn and like, I love not seeing that, but instead, like, realizing these are all of that, that his life was full of these, even in that night was full of these choices. And maybe they're choices that 
a different at a different season of his life he would have made you know but he doesn't um he doesn't at that point i also i mean in terms of him going out too i also think about the scene where he goes to see uh dixie perform goes to her concert mm-hmm. and like i'm even one like at first i was like well is is uh is rosalie with him like they could go to this together and it's like well she okay she's not there and then i'm wondering does she know where he is and and i realize again this and this ties back to the cell phone thing is like because they also live on such an island out there whenever anybody leaves you don't know when they're coming back mm-hmm. you know and and especially someone like max with the history that or max with the history that he has you don't necessarily don't necessarily know that so i i really really like that that has to do with the landscape and with the characters um I'm curious. Uh, Robert Duvall is obviously a great actor, and the more that I see him in things, the more I'm like, this guy's kind of amazing. That this is the same guy who is Tom Hagen. This is the same guy who's Kilgore. This is the same guy who's, you know, Boo Radley. Uh, you know, all, I'm you know all these other roles. Um, I'm just curious to hear you talk about the Robert Duvall performance, and also, and this is this this other question's a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyhow. Should this be the the performance that he has an Oscar for, or is there something else where you're like, I wish he had it for this, or is this like, this is the Oscar performance? That's a really good question because, yeah, as you know, he had I think it's six or seven nominations, uh, and it's the only one for which for which he's won. Um, I think I I don't know. It's it's hard to say, Sam, because. I, I guess what I, one answer I would give you is I wish he'd won more Oscars. I mean, I, I wish he'd won Oscars for for some of those other because part of the point of Duval is the range. But I think maybe okay. Let, 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 let me take the position. Yes, this is the one he should have won the Oscar for. Um, and I would argue that that's because it is Duval at his best as a kind of method actor who just literally disappears into this role. Um, uh, Tess Harper was asked what it was like to to work with or to know Robert Duval, right? And she said, I don't know, I only know Max Sledge. Um, and you know, Duval did all kinds of research for this role. He, dro- he drove all over Texas, visiting honky-tonks, singing with, with country bands. Um, so I think in a way, it's, it's, it's a very Duvalian thing, the way he immerses himself uh, in, uh, in the role. And also I think the way that um, he communicates so much just with his it's a very quiet performance, right? So much just with his eyes, just with his um, uh, his voice, uh, quiet intonation. So I don't know. I think that maybe one could say that one of the, one of the reasons it's a great role to win the Oscar for is because it's not a show off role. That it's the very it's the very opposite of a kind of a of a showy uh, uh, star turn. So yeah, yeah. And and I was um, uh, and I remembered this, but like I was, it's amazing that he became a country singer too. Like he sang these songs, he wrote some of these songs and like, and that's, that, that's pretty impressive. And I especially love the moments where he's singing and his voice is faltering. Like he's, he's, you know, like, like the, the time when he's singing to Rosalie in the kitchen, the song that he wrote. And he's just like, "I, I just don't have it right now. And it's like, even that is, 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 is really great. I love the, the story of him driving through Texas. Apparently he drove like, 680 miles through texas and he would talk to people and record their accents and when he found the person who he was like oh that's what max ledge sounds like he had the guy read the entire script into a tape recorder so he could hear that voice and sort of take on that voice and what i really like about duval doing that what i like about the film in general is that 
this is a these are a group of people that don't always get treated well in Hollywood films. This is a socioeconomic or a geographical area of the country where they tend to be looked down upon. And I love the fact that there is not a hint of condescension in this film. These are people whose lives are being taken really seriously. And in that respect, it is a little, I mean, this is, this is an odd connection to make, but in that respect, I think it's sort of in the same vein as Italian neorealism and what we looked at when we looked at Kelly Reichert's film. Uh, and in, in fact, uh, it, it was said by, I think it was the director, um, Alan, uh, Alan Pacula, who, who really actually credited this film with um, getting, uh, the, kind of helping to find the American independent film movement uh, and saying that it's, it's uh, kind of validating the idea of a more personal film, filmmaking that looks beyond just kind of a Hollywood uh, uh, genre. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I had that same thought about like, it's, and that's, I think that's part of the 1983 of it to me is it felt very real yeah. and not, not sort of lampooned or caricatured, you know, in that way. And also like thinking about Italian neorealism, although we're talking about success in the music industry, it's not, it's, it's such like a low level thing. Like this band just wants to like be able to play in clubs, like the, the younger band who is like, ins kind of inspired by Max. I mean, they probably right. have big dreams, but, uh, but Max sure doesn't anymore. Like, I mean, he kind, he kind of does and kind of doesn't like he's writing songs. Like you kind of wonder, like, is, does he have this hope? And then he, you know, at one point he's like, yeah, I'd love to make some money off of this too. You know? So like, I love actually the layering of like, I don't care about this, but well, I actually kind of, kind of would like to, you know, in, in those types of things. Um, other performances that I, I really liked in this film, I thought Tess Harper was great. Yeah. Uh, just very, very real, very believable. I love seeing uh, a young Ellen uh, Ellen Barkin uh, yeah. as the daughter. It's a small role, but uh, really, really like well, well cast, and again, very believable. And felt like somebody who was not from this. I mean, because she's not from this small town. But when she walks in, even looking at her, you're like. Oh, this is this. She feels like a different version of 1983 because she's has a much different life than um, than Rosalie does. And that scene with her and him is really that to me. That's one of the most heartbreaking scenes of the film. Um, you know, he's he's in a sense. I think he's not sure what he can call her now. You know, she says, "You don't do you know my name?" And he does, of course, know her name. But he's I think he's he's not sure what he he can say. And then. And then when he says he doesn't remember singing that song to her, right? And then, and then she leaves, and he starts and he starts to sing it. Um, it's like you, you know, there's all this kind of. It's like you, you can you can tell that he understands that while he wants to have a relationship with her, it's not as though he can just kind of walk back in and claim her. So it's a it's a, so to me it's a very complex emotional relationship that he's feeling right then because he wants to see her, he wants to know her. But he also knows that he's been uh, absent in her life and he can't just kind of pop back in. Yeah, I mean, as this is a movie so much about parent-child relationships yeah. and he doesn't assume he gets to be a parent now just because she's come to him. And that's really great. One other small um, uh, <laughs> casting thing that, I, that I, I did a double take on and then I had to look up to, to uh, looked in the credits at the end is the the reporter who comes, it's a really small scene, uh, is Paul Gleason, who's the the um, principal in The Breakfast Club. It's just in a lot of 80s movies. And I was like, 
I've never seen him in like a serious role. And it was yeah. very funny. To be like, Oh, that's, that's a, that's a face that I know, but, it, but it was enough that I wasn't sure it was him, even though this is, I think a year before the breakfast club, probably. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Breakfast club is 84. Yeah. Um, well, I, I enjoyed Wilford Brimley. I always loved Wilford Brimley. Um, and uh, he was he was brought in by Duval because Duval was having such a hard time getting along with Beresford, uh, and it wasn't a happy production. Beresford and Duval were odds a lot. In fact, at one point, Beresford walked off the set, and Duval had to kind of go get him back. But I love the story about one scene when Beresford thought that Brimley was taking something too slowly, and they asked him to pick up the pace, and Brimley said, "I didn't I didn't know anybody had dropped it." Um, <laughs> I also I also think the kid is great. Um, yeah. You know, and again, in the in, in the in kind of the uh, spirit of, of of neorealism and a few other films we watched, you know, not an actor at all, uh, and actually, as it turns out, uh, a young boy who had in fact lost his father, uh, although they didn't know that at the time they cast him, and I just thought his performance is so naturalistic and so uh, so effective. I really I really thought he did a nice job. Another thing that that I think is interesting thinking about Sonny is. Um, and this is this is very true of movies throughout the 80s but especially late 70s early 80s is how much like the shadow of vietnam or the legacy of vietnam i mean this movie should have seems like it has nothing to do with vietnam except it does you know that that his that that that's why his father's not there that's why rosalie's husband's not there um and uh again this is the kind of thing that when i was i mean i was alive at this time but i had no sense of what the vietnam war was let alone that I mean, if I heard about it, it was this thing that was in the past because it happened before I was born. But thinking like, you know, he's probably five years older than than I was at the time when this movie mm-hmm. came out, and like just how much something like that impacts impacts his life. I thought that was really um, it, it's really interesting to think about all the places where, if you look at just pop culture from that time, the effects of Vietnam on a generation sort of shows up there. Um, one of the things that I also think is interesting, and you talked about Duvall's performance as like a, this very quiet performance, is that if you think about this as a movie which has a uh, which has a lot of the action happen off screen, you would think that would lead to it being a very like talky movie. Then, but mm-hmm. it's it's not that either. Um, mm. uh, that it's 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 actually more silent, right? And as we talked about, the exposition kind of comes in uh, in some some weird ways. Well, part part of that too is because, um, as one of the right critics points out, Beresford lets a lot of the country western songs play all the way through, because they are telling the story. Um, and and then of course the, uh, the 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 verse from the Lefty Frizzell song, "It Hurts to Face Reality," um, that becomes a kind of um, refrain throughout the film. I can't, I lost track of how many times they had uh, the, that 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 just that one line about it hurts too much to face reality that kind of kept coming up over and over and over again. So I, I love the way the soundtrack actually, you know, in, in both subtle and obvious ways kind of comments on, on the action. It made me think about that moment, if you'll recall in, um, in Lone Star, when um, Chris Cooper drives to see his ex-wife and comes back that I freak what song is playing, but, they, but the whole, entire song plays. Uh, and this film does a lot of that as as well. I mean, Dixie performs two or even three songs in, in their entirety, uh, one of which was uh, nominated for Oscar for Best Song over you. 
Um, I want to talk about the this. Uh, you you picked this movie for 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 this week because you said we should do something that's kind of in line with thinking about the coming of Easter and some of these things. And I'm and I know why Don Postema and Thomas Becknell were so interested in this movie was because of. I mean, it has overt religious, uh, overt Christian things in it, and also subtle religious Christian things in it as well. So I maybe want to uh, talk a little bit about that and. Presume, I mean, you've taught you've taught film courses either at Bethel or in churches. I presume this is a movie you've taught before. Actually, I haven't. Really? Okay, that surprises me. I, I, know, I have not taught this before. No, so because this feels like a movie that would oh yeah. lend itself to yeah, something yeah, it would, like that. It would teach beautifully. No doubt about it. So, what jumps out at you in terms? I mean, there's there's some obvious religious themes about you know. Uh, baptism, birth, and rebirth, and redemption, and death, and these types of things. So, so what are the what are the big ideas that you think about with that? Well, I, I, I think what jumps out at me actually, Sam, is that uh, even though it's a film with with its kind of overt religious message about yes, about about sin, redemption, uh, and all that, um, one thing I didn't remember about the film, which I think is really quite remarkable, is I didn't I didn't, I didn't remember the note on which it ends which I think to me is a very kind of um, sophisticated uh, religious um, position that it takes. And that is, it actually engages in the whole notion of theodicy, right? It engages in the whole notion of um, why do bad things happen? Why, why, and, and so in, in a, it, it doesn't take a simple minded approach to what it means to be redeemed or what it means to, to have a, some kind of a born again experience. So you get a little hint of that when they're riding in the truck, right on the way back from the from the baptism. I don't feel any different. And Max says not yet. But but one of the last things that Max says, which would which is in a sense surprising in a religious film, if you want to call it that, is he says, "I didn't trust happiness. I don't try, I, and I never did, and I and I never will." So what I think the film does, though, is it, but it doesn't negate happiness. And it doesn't, you know, the theme that she strikes that Suli says at the very beginning about, you know, th she thanks God for his tender mercies. Um, and that's that's a phrase that shows up in at least nine different Psalms. Um, and so what the film is saying is those tender mercies are not negated by the bad things that happen. But there's no simple answer to why did this thing happen to, to her and not happen to me. But the answer, but but instead what it says is, the, the, the life of faith is more complicated than that. There's good things and there's bad things. And you don't judge whether or not God has merciful only by kind of a keeping a balance sheet of did a good thing happen, did a bad thing happen. So that, that to me is what's really interesting about the film is it's not a simple, in, 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 the, in the same way that Get Low, you know, wasn't a simple redemption story. And that's that kind of would would connect those two films. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I love the, the notion, and we talk about this uh, when I teach uh christianity western culture you know the idea that um faith is not defined as happiness and, and that there are plenty of times in the history of christianity where people would say actually what you know faith is about suffering it's about embracing suffering and you know uh you know we read from martyrdom accounts where, where these martyrs are like this is this is the highest thing i can do is to suffer and it's not about Right. I know, I know that I'm blessed because I'm happy. I, it's, it's. I know that I, I'm blessed because I am, you know, and and you know, and and I think that's really powerful. I also find it interesting in terms of the, um, 
and this kind of ties in a bunch of stuff that we're talking about the the role of car accidents in this movie because we we know that um his daughter uh sue ann dies in a car accident we see him almost get into a fatal car accident and then later after after sue ann dies he says you know i was in a car accident mm-hmm. and you find out about this other in it you know and and what i like about that is that car accidents i don't know if you've ever been in a car accident they're the most random occurrence mm-hmm. because because it is the moment uh in i've only been in in a couple it, and it's it or one really and it's the the moment in life where like everything is happening just as you normally would and all of the sudden yeah. everything is different instantly you know yeah. and and i think it's the closest thing we can experience uh that i can think of to the like sort of just um random possibility of death or the end of li- or the end of time even it's just like like you don't it's not something you're preparing for it's not even like getting sick where it's like well i started to get sick and then i got really ill and, and but it's just it's it's this instantaneous thing and it seems random and, and you can play the theodicy game and, and you can play the game of like well what if i had just been one minute earlier or one minute later and does this thing happen and so i like i actually think the role of, of car accident is really uh really important um in that do you have thoughts specifically about the hymn on the wings of a dove this is a this is a hymn that we sing a lot in at, at my church so it's a song i was very very familiar with um yeah. but it's that seems like a very uh intentional choice as well in terms of this is the song that he sang to his daughter because this is something that he was doing long before uh, you know, this kind of conversion that, that we see him have. Um, it also speaks to, I think, the intersection of Christianity and hymnody and kind of old, old-timey old country music, too, that those things have these great overlaps, you know, and it might even be, it might be the kind of thing that he sang it to her when he was, uh, when she was a, a baby, because it's just a song that you sing, and he's not thinking a lot about it, and maybe later on he's thinking, about what the message of that is it, the, the film doesn't explain any of that but i really like that i like thinking about that you know well it's, it's also i mean it's a it's a film about it's a song about a parent-child relationship right it's a it's the dove sent at Jesus' baptism and so it's a it's an affirmation of the father's love for the for the for the child so i think in that sense it ties in beautifully thematically both with his relationship with his daughter and his relationship with his stepson so this is a reminder of god's love and then how does god's love get diffused through uh human love and then uh one last thing about the end of the movie uh, just to to tie it in because there was a moment where i was like oh i've seen a version of this ending before did not the not the scene in the garden you know the i don't trust happiness but the thing that happens at the very end of the movie, did that make you think of anything else that we watched? Oh, it's the God. field. Of, it's the field of dreams ending, right? I mean, you even oh, see, sure. you even, yeah, you, e- you even see Rosalie step out of the house through the screen door, look at them and kind of lean against the lean against the thing. And then it's the two, it's the father and the son playing catch. And I was like, Oh, that's, that is the field of dreams ending. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it looks, it looks almost identical to that. So um, I was like, yeah, I, I it was, <laughs> I, I think I've seen Field of Dreams so many times in my life that 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 like it even it, they it's even shot the same Field of Dreams even sh- shoots it the same way as that. So I was like, that's kind of great. That's a great connection. I hadn't. I, I I'm sorry. I hadn't. I'm glad. I'm sorry I hadn't thought of that, but I'm glad you did because uh, I I like baseball a lot more than football. But you're right about that. So anything else you want to talk about with this film? 
Um, I guess I just want to I want to pick up on what uh, one of uh, the critics of the the time said of, about the film. Um, uh, David David Sturrett writing uh, I forget where he was uh, Christian Christian Science Monitor David Sturrett was said that um, the pleasure of this film is rediscovering the dramatic richness of decency honesty compassion and a few other qualities that have become rare visitors to the silver screen it feels good to have them back again and I think we touched on this earlier I think the ability of, of the film to deal with those sorts of um, really kind of fundamental issues of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be in a relationship. You know, sometimes we accept um, the way the way movies uh, structure reality in a way that isn't really very close to how we actually experience reality. You touched on this earlier, Sam, when you talked about how families handle things and how the quote kind of exposition in this film or this, the discovery of and the revelation of things in this film play out the way they actually do. And that's why I made that neo-realist connection again. And I realize again, it's it's a convention that it's more realistic than other kinds of Hollywood films. But there is a kind of emotional realism to the film that I find to be very, um, uh, very re refreshing and uh, takes me to much deeper places than a lot of uh, than a lot of typical films do. Well, I have one other quote uh, from the the Janet Maslin. Um review at the time and i don't know if she means this as a a compliment or a dig but I, I i read it as a compliment because this is the type of movie that i think would stand up to multiple viewings and interpretations uh, she says like it's laconic characters the film itself seems to have more on its mind than it can imagine to say now i don't i think she's saying that somewhat as a critique but i love the fact that it, that there is so much going on that it hints at or or even just barely passes by but it's like oh I, like it like uh, the vietnam part is is where what she's talking about there and it's one that was one of the things that stood out to me that i'm sure when i saw this in 1998 1999 i didn't even think about um but but i feel like if i watched this movie again there would be something else some other little theme that just sort of passes by that would become this deeply interesting thing to me where kind of like when you're sitting with an old friend and you're sitting there not talking to each other, you know <laughs> that you each have a lot on your mind more than you're going to say in that moment. Uh, but I think, I think that's the strength of this movie. Just the, just looking at these people and the little that you get from them, the little that they say, the little that their music is, is, is revealing. I think that makes this really a powerful movie in that way. So what do you have for us next week? Well, I've, I've, I've wrestled with this, Sam, because I, I don't want to um, wear out Robert Duvall's welcome, but it just seems to me, as I said, I wanted to do some films that help us think about the Easter season. It just seems to me that we have to follow up this film with 1997's The Apostle. Um, and, and earlier on, when you asked me about which performance he should get an Oscar for, I had to bite my tongue because, um, I, I think there's a strong argument to be made for the apostle, actually. So um, anyway, that's a film that he wrote and directed, and um, it's also a film with a lot of music in it, and it's a film that kind of gets us to uh, another another angle on the redemption theme. So uh, that's what we're gonna do. It's funny because last week when you said we're gonna go back to Robert Duvall and think about Easter, I was like, oh, is he gonna pick the apostle? <laughs> that's the movie I thought you were gonna pick. Now I've I saw this at Bethel Film Forum. 
probably in 1998. Uh, I don't remember it at all. So I'm very excited to watch this because it will, even though I've seen it, it will be with completely fresh eyes because other than the movie poster, I know what Robert Duvall looks like in this movie. That's all that I've got. I don't know anything else about it. So I'm, I'm really excited for this. Well, we wore out the CD of the soundtrack. We just fell in love. We just fell in love with the music in this film. So, anyway. oh, fantastic! Yeah. Well, Barrett, thank you so much for uh, for recommending Tender Mercies. Uh, it's a movie that I, like I said, I, I I haven't ever gone back to, but it's one that I think it reads very differently from when I was twenty two to forty three. I think that's it's 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 very different in that way, and it's a movie that I. Um, like I said, I recommended it to my brother. I think that that he'll find this uh, find this very interesting. I was telling we were talking about some of the kind of more Catholic themed movies that he that we've watched. So I'm I'm sure I don't know if he's watched uh, of Gods and Men yet, but I'm sure he'll love that. I'm sure he'll love Trial of Joan of Arc. But I said this one's not that, but I think it's the kind of thing that's gonna gonna connect with him uh, connect with him as well. So thank you so much for recommending this and we will be back next week to talk about the apostle in the video store.